Welcome to the Writing Westward podcast. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. On this episode, we talk with historian Stephen Pine about his many books on the history of fire in America, including his 2015 Between Two Fires, A Fire History of Contemporary America, and his ongoing multi-volume series of regional fire histories entitled To the Last Smoke. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. In each episode of this podcast, we host a conversation with an author or scholar of new work that explores the North American West. Disciplines will vary, the length of conversations will likely range dramatically, but we hope that each conversation will introduce you to new work, provoke as many questions as they provide answers, and inspire you to learn more about the North American West as a region, as well as its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, funding opportunities for research and events, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. Follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can find a list of podcast episodes and listen on the Red Center website and clicking on the Writing Westward Podcast tab at the top of the page. You can also listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and various other podcast networks and distributors. Thanks for listening. Stephen Pine is a prolific and remarkably influential historian. His work is read worldwide. He has received NEH fellowships, been a fellow at the National Humanities Center, and even won a prestigious MacArthur Fellowship. In this episode, we chat about his recent books on fire in America. In 2015, the University of Arizona Press published Between Two Fires, A Fire History of Contemporary America. And in the years since, the press has published an ongoing series of regional fire surveys entitled To the Last Smoke. Towards the end of our conversation, we touch on a couple of those volumes. Volumes 1 through 6 are already available and include Florida, California, the Northern Rockies, the Southwest, the Great Plains, and the Interior West. The upcoming volumes 7 through 9 will include the Northeast, a multi-regional volume on the Mid-American Oak Woodlands, Pacific Northwest, and Alaska, and even a comparative overseas volume entitled Here and There. Pine is a Regents Professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University. He is a historian by training, but this faculty home surrounds him by scientists and degree programs like biology, microbiology, evolutionary biology, and so forth. In addition to the courses he teaches for the History and Philosophy of Science degree program in the School of Life Sciences, he also teaches some courses for the School for the Future of Innovation in Society, which ASU touts as linking innovation to public value. This is an apt description of what Stephen Pine has spent most of his career doing. He not only researches and publishes on fire history and other environmental topics, but he has dedicated himself to constantly engaging with the public be it with government bodies, land agencies, land managers, or other public entities. He is dedicated to providing the best historical perspectives information to both the people at these various bureaucratic levels who make top-down decisions about fire management, but also to the people on the ground actually managing environments, landscapes, and fire regimes. Professor Pine was the first interview I recorded for this podcast, all the way back in June. However, the recording was marred by technical difficulties, glitches in sound, and so forth that made it simply unusable. I was devastated because the conversation had been so rich. In light of the ongoing fire disasters in California and elsewhere, I timidly approached Professor Pine, admitting to the loss of our original conversation, and asking if he'd be willing to spend another hour chatting with me. 
His time has been in high demand lately, but he was gracious and generous enough to record the following makeup interview, now marred by the cold I'm currently suffering and a very croaky voice. Welcome, Professor Pine, and thank you for joining us again on the podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the thanks for the invitation. I described a little bit in the introduction about uh, the problems we had when we uh, initially spoke um, about six months ago last June, and so I'm grateful for you taking uh, the time. I know that you're, you've been in high demand lately, unfortunately, um, because uh, our problems with fire uh, continue. We're going to um, talk a about fire in America, we're going to specifically talk about some of the books that you've recently published. Um, and I'm hoping that our conversation, as I'm sure most listeners are thinking about fire recently, hopefully our conversation will give them more context, better understandings, uh, maybe even some actionable things that they can do. Yeah. As this continues to be such a pressing matter for us. Um, but first, I want to dig a little bit into your personal history with fire, which goes um, all the way back to some early experiences in the Grand Canyon. Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, 1967, a few days after I graduated from high school, uh, I, I appeared at Grand Canyon National Park to work as a laborer and I uh, was signing my papers when a call came in. One of the guys, uh, the North Rim fire crew, uh, said he wouldn't be able to make it. So they were anxious to fill the slot. There I was, asked me if I wanted to go. I said, sure. What did I know? Uh, they flew me over and I did that for 15 summers. And then later did uh, three summers work uh, writing fire plans for the Park Service. So I learned fire really at the ground level. And I always that that's still how I how I approach it. Uh, I begin all my histories by going in the going to the ground, going on the scene, talking to people who have to deal with it and then make the history out of that rather than beginning with historiographic questions and then trying to see how fire fits in. So you start with your own personal experiences or, or uh, going out and, and seeing uh, places new. That's right. And, you know, when it was a real shock. I, I'd grown up uh, in a Phoenix suburb. I was a valedictorian at a Jesuit high school. I'd had, I'd had a very good education, but a classical education. Then suddenly, within a matter of a couple of days, I found myself with a Pulaski and shovel and chainsaw hiking and <laughs> helicoptering around the North Rim dealing with fire and trying to come to grips with that, that kind of biographical wind shear, if you will, yeah. uh, really created the tension, and that, that has stayed with me. So I find to recreate it, I need to go to new places and actually see it on the ground and then try to make sense out of it, in effect, recapitulating the same kind of experience that got me, that got me started. So how did those early experiences then translate into kind of your academic pursuits of studying the history of fire? Well, that's a good question. Uh, at first, they, they had nothing to do. Uh, I lived two completely different lives. I would go every summer to the North Rim. Um, no, you know, back back in those days, uh, we were pretty isolated. We certainly didn't have internets and, and cell phones. Uh, we had no television. Uh, we would get newspapers a day or two late. Uh, once in a while, when the ionosphere was right, we could get KOMA, an Oklahoma <laughs> trucker station on the radio. Um, I subscribed to Time magazine, and once a week I read that, and that was my contact with the world. That's how I learned we, we landed on the moon. I had, I had no idea otherwise. Wow. So it was a completely separate world. Once a month, bless their hearts, the Coconino County bookmobile would roll in. 
and uh, we'd all go get some books. And, and that was it. And then I'd go off to school and I completely immersed myself in school. I'd never studied fire. Uh, the, at both Stanford and the University of Texas, Austin, uh, none of them were, were natural resource schools. They didn't teach fire. It was not an academic subject. So they were completely two different lives. I, I, I left finally with a doctorate. I was thinking myself, a Western American historian, historian of science, really was what I was doing. I wrote a biography of a geologist mm-hmm. and uh, explorer in the West. Um, and then it was uh, after about, uh, well, after I'd gotten my doctorate, had no jobs, uh, was working in the South Rim at a winter, um, temporary winter employment, and I uh, realized I really ought to bring these two lives together and try to apply the kind of training I'd been given to, given in academics, basically a historian, and think about fire in that way. And at the time, no one else was really doing that. So it worked out very well, but that was, it was kind of a forced merger. Hmm. And, uh, but a, but a successful one, and I've, yeah. I've been able to continue it, so. Have you ever speculated where, where your academic and professional life would have taken you if you hadn't been on that long shot crew at the North Rim for so many summers? Oh, I, my life would have been completely different. Uh, that was one of those, uh, forks in the road and, um, there, there's no going back. Uh, certainly all of the stuff, I mean, I, I've continued to publish. I've done a lot of, of, I actually could have had a successful academic career if I'd never written a word on fire. I mean, I published on, on Gilbert. I published on how the canyon became grand, a book on Antarctica, maybe my best book, uh, the Voyager mission. I could have continued that and done pretty well. But the fire stuff was really a, a unique contribution. And I think what I really brought to it was a certain perspective or voice that sort of comes through indirectly. I don't know that you could teach it. It's just this is how you think about fire when you're out there actually dealing with it. And most of our fires are small. And they, they take on a certain character or personality depending what kind of response they compel from you. And, you know, some are really sweet fires. This this was really fun. Others are just absolutely abysmal, mm-hmm. existentially awful. Uh, and so you think about fires in a different way than someone who had just come through it by reading about it or, or having other kinds of training. And I think that's gives my stuff a little bit different flavor. Yeah. And that's something that, that would be hard for someone else to replicate. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you took that fork in the road. Um, it, it also, <laughs> I think has led to a, a very unique academic career as kind of also a public intellectual who engages continually with, uh, with agencies, with the public, um, with, uh, you know, fire managers and people in the government and the forest service. And, um, that kind of, public engagement, like real world impact of academic scholarship, it isn't something we see all the time. So that's, uh, uh, I, th- I think a, a real unique part of your, of your career. Well, thank you. I, I, I hope it makes a difference. Um, in some ways, uh, it's hard for history to find a place at the table, if you will. Um, sciences get lots of attention. They're given, they're given standing. Historians are, are not. Uh, most people outside of it, don't think of us as having analytical power and don't really appreciate the synthetic power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it's hard to make a case. And sometimes while I'm, I'm 
I'm accepted. I, I give endless numbers of talks. I, I think of the role as a kind of court poet. I'm called upon <laughs> to give the plenary talk, you know, and tell the stories of the of the clan, and you know, um, speak differently. But then when the real business gets when the real business gets underway, the historians go elsewhere. Well, better a court poet than a court jester, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a my feeling. <laughs> no, no, no. That that that's my sense. And uh, you know, when I first published a fire book in '82, Fire in America, there was almost zero interest in fire. Uh, fire in the West. These things were kind of sort of weird acts of Western violence, like a grizzly bear attack or something. Mm-hmm. It really wasn't embedded with the culture. It's just some freakish thing that happens out there. And I've continued to write, study it, and compare it to other countries and so forth. And all the time since then, the interest in fire and the savagery and damages done by fires has increased. So uh, I recently did uh, some on-camera interviews for NOVA, which is a science show. But I finally... They're doing another documentary. I was on their, their, their previous one. And this time they said, you know, we've got to have some history. We've got to have some context on this. And they told me I'm a demographic of one. <laughs> so they had to, they got right to the end and they said, we've got to interview you. I said, that's fine. Uh, I'm happy to do it. Uh, because we can bring, you know, that sense of context and contingency that that's really what history can bring. And that's what people need. You know, they don't need another scatter diagram. They don't need another um, mound of data because they can't make sense out of it. It's yeah. got to be turned into something. It's got to become a narrative. It's got to have an ethical or aesthetic frame to it. It's got to have something that's not going to come out of the science, frankly, and the data. And they reluctantly admit that. Uh, they allow me, what really makes it possible for me is that I spent all the summers on a crew. So, in a sense, I've been initiated into the fraternity. You have some street cred with them, huh? Exactly. Yeah. And I found when I went to other parts of the world, they couldn't care less, I'm sorry to say, about history or their history. They, they liked it once it was done. But I had, after I wrote Fire in America, I sat down and wrote a textbook, Introduction to Wildland Fire, which I saw as a book project and needed one that needed to be done. But the foresters and others who taught fire weren't doing it. They're not book people. So I wrote that book, which caused a lot of resentment (laughs) (laughs) among the academics uh, who teach fire, the scientists, but they weren't doing it. But that book really helped a lot because when I went to what was still the Soviet Union or I went to Ghana, I went to other places. They all knew that book. And then there was a second edition. I got a couple of other people to help me so I could remove some of the, the stigma that was attached to it. And I'm working on uh, trying to set up a fire history of Mexico. And they're very enthusiastic. A number of colleagues there, and they say, you know, we, we require all of our students to read your textbook. Wow. Wow. That's some reach. So that is what, again, that's the sort of woods cred, if you will, that allows me to get in and get access to some of this stuff. Let's talk about some of the other things you've written. Um, in 2015, you published uh, Between Two Fires, A Fire History of Contemporary America. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what the purpose of that book was? And then maybe we can even then kind of transition it to kind of a brief discussion about how it might inform some of our 
our understanding sure. of, you know, the, the last, even just the last 12 months, um, or even the last one month. Um, and then after that, maybe then, then we'll transition over to, uh, your, uh, to the last smoke series. But let's, let's talk a little sure. bit about your Between Two Fires book. Well, Between Two Fires was actually proposed as a two book project. And, uh, the idea came as we were approaching the centennial of the big blow up. So 2010, there would be some memorial events. And I was thinking, you know, the last. Could you describe to people the big blow up who may not be the familiar? The big blow up, sure. So we're coming up on 2010, the centennial of the big blow up or the big burn, which was this massive outbreak of fires in August, uh, 1910, uh, that burned about three and a quarter million acres in the Northern Rockies, a complex of fires, killed 78 firefighters uh, in six different incidents, but essentially in the same afternoon and evening, uh, traumatized the Forest Service. The agency went into debt for almost a million dollars, which was real money at that time, um, and really set it on the path to um, modern firefighting. There was also a debate that same month uh, over light burning, something, uh, an alternative, a completely different approach, emulating the American Indian, uh, as critics uh, called it, uh, to firefighting. In other words, we would base forest protection on fire lighting. Anyway, all this occurred burns, in 1910. Right? What we would call today, yeah, fire by prescription or prescribed fires. Um, so in a sense, a long term, the light burner, short term, they lost long term, they won. But anyway, that centennial is coming up, a real creation story for the American way of wildland fire. And I thought uh, we really needed to update the story. My last, the book ended, the story ended in the late 70s. And I said, wow, it's been a pretty eventful 30 years and we need a new story. So uh, I I went to the federal agencies and said, would you like uh, would you like an update? And uh, the Forest Service uh, said, yes, they would, uh, but they wanted uh, the Interior Department to contribute as well. And Interior signed on, and then the Joint Fire Science Program wanted a part of the action, and they, they contributed a little. So it was a two-book project, and I, I said, well, one part, what became between two fires, uh, would be the play-by-play. So who did what, when, where, what happened, what were the policy changes, all of that sort of standard narrative history. And the second part I was thinking of calling the color commentary, it would be a collection of essays that would get at some details. So between two fires, I didn't want it to just continue the story, pick up where fire in America had ended because we, there was a huge effort in the sixties and seventies to redirect fire control, make it fire management, refound it on some kind of prescribed burning uh, in one form or another. And it was, in effect, a revolution. And I thought that story and its subsequent playing out deserved its own narrative arc. So I begin the book in 1960 when the Forest Service is probably at its at its high water mark, 50 years after mm-hmm. the big blow up. What had the um, what did the policy? Can you describe? So if you're about to talk about the shift in policy, um, sure. I mean the kind of the fire and axe policy um, of the previous decades, you know, after the big burn. Could you kind of describe that so we can understand what this shift was? Sure. So this fire revolution reacted against what had been a really 50-year program. But before that 50-year program, before the big blowup reached a culmination, the country had been overwhelmed with fires associated with settlement. 
mostly powered by land clearing slash and logging slash. And there were hundreds. I mean, these these fires were many times larger than what we've seen in recent years and probably 10 times as lethal. So at the big, in 1910, that shifts and um, state-sponsored conservation, if you will, which will be done through the Forest Service, is going to remove these really abusive and damaging fires from the American landscape. So they begin the project, the trauma of 1910, you know, uh, three of the future next three chiefs for the Forest Service were all personally on the fire line. So this is a kind of wow. Valley Forge or Long March for that whole generation. And that will continue through 1939. They're determined it's not going to happen again. And they're able to uh, install some kind of fire protection, particularly in front country lands. The back country is trickier. And then in the 1930s with the New Deal, they suddenly have lots of resources, uh, the Civilian Conservation Corps, lots of emergency conservation work, and almost overnight, an infrastructure for dealing with fire is installed. And so in 1935, the chief forester announces a universal standard policy for every fire that is controlled by 10 o'clock the next morning. Whether it's, you know, 100 feet away or 100 miles, there is one standard. So this is the policy of complete fire suppression. By 10 it o'clock is, the next day, the fire is out. That's right. The fire will be out. If not, then you plan for 10 o'clock the following day and yeah. so on. So a very clear standard. I mean, not much room for ambiguity. <laughs> it was it was debated. There was a big, a very interesting debate in Missoula in 1934. They assembled their best minds and... They really didn't want to have an either-or choice, walk away from it, let it burn, or throw everything at it. But they couldn't find a way to frame the question in in an intermediate way. It tended to flip to one side or the other. So it was discussed. This was the choice that was made, and then that becomes kind of entrenched doctrine. And a lot of effort is put to making it, making a lot of it money, happen. Right? <laughs> A lot of money, uh, but a lot of ingenuity. Uh, you know, uh, the development of, of um, radio over uh, mountainous and, and uh, heavily forested terrain was really developed by the Forest Service to support Fireline. And it, they were the main radio laboratory until World War II. Uh, smoke jumping was developed by the Forest Service and then uh, copied by the Army again in World War II. They, they were doing, I mean, they were doing a whole variety of things. There was no end to the inventiveness that went on. They were really committed, in some ways, uh, fanatical about it and convinced that fire was intrinsically damaging. That is what European forestry insisted. And even when evidence came about that that was wrong, uh, they, they went to the point of, of falsifying the data so it would fit the theory because they knew that had to be the case. And also, as a result of 1910, the Weeks Act set up a program of federal-state cooperation in forestry, which would be centered on fire control. So the Forest Service then becomes sort of the, the matrix for a national system of fire control that extends everywhere. What are the problems this all creates then that, that are then reacted to in the 60s and 70s where your next book picks up? 1960, it's sort of completed that mission. It's really riding high. And then... Then the wheels start to come off. There's pushback. Part of it is because we're seeing a buildup in fuels. These lands, many of them that had been overcut and overburned and abused, 
have now recovered. Well, that also means that they're growing a fuel bed that can take fires again in ways they couldn't. Uh, also, all of the easy, all the landscapes that had easy surface fires to put out are now thickening and changing, and they're becoming much more difficult. So fire protection, it turns out, this kind of suppression-only policy, turns out to be self-defeating over the long term. And that effect is there. But there's also uh, there's also interest in the ecology of fire, which was not even a subject, didn't even have a name until the 60s, in the sense that uh, removing fire could be as ecologically disruptive as putting it into places that didn't have it. And we're beginning to see a loss, a kind of ecological rot in many of these landscapes. And the fuel loads are one manifestation, but simply the ability of these systems to function is deteriorating because we've taken out a vital function. And there's also a group that that uh, built on tradition of burning, which are built into a folk cultures and many rural landscapes, and they insisted on the landowner's right to burn, that this is not a business of the federal government or any government. They should have, as landowners, the capacity to burn. So these groups come together in the 60s, and rather suddenly, kind of surprisingly, the resistance collapses, and intellectually they win, so that by 1968, the National Park Service has adopted a new policy that will seek to put fire back in naturally where that's possible, otherwise by deliberate burning. That's 1968. That's 50 years ago. It takes the Forest Service another 10 years with a series of stutter steps, but it comes to the same policy. And so there's a major reform. All of the new pieces for a new era are in place by 1978. But it's kind of a revolution from the top. And it's going to take time to download this and actually change the culture and work out the techniques. And what happens is basically a political change. In 1980, uh, the Reagan administration comes in, beginning a long Republican ascendancy, really. And... Uh, hostility towards environmental reforms, gradual removal of bipartisanship, all these other things that we've seen, a transfer from civilian to military agencies, all this kind of stuff, that gets underway, and you would think, what has fire to do with that? Well, fire fire gets caught up in all of that, and so the fire revolution stalls. The whole 80s are a lost decade, um, and they end with sort of 80s and early 90s, they end with kind of two mass expressions of what the future holds if we don't change. One is the 1988 fires yeah. in Yellowstone. The other is the 1991 fires that burned into Oakland, California, the first of the really horrific fires coming in from open countryside, not wildland in this case, but sort of open space uh, parkland coming into a city, burning 795 homes in the first hour and then continuing to spread as an urban fire. So that's what the future that's what the future promises. Interestingly, neither of those changed the federal policy in a big way. You would think it would, but it didn't. The the change year was 1994. And for several reasons. One one was uh 34 firefighters died, 15 of them at South Canyon in Colorado, and that got a lot of attention. Because two years before, Norman McLean's Young Men in Fire had been published. And suddenly, life imitates art. McLean was talking about a 1949 fire in Montana that burned over a group of smoke jumpers. 
But in this case, we have another fire that burns over a mixed crew of jumpers and, and uh, hot shots. And it looked like the same thing. People now had a prism for understanding it in ways they hadn't before. That got a lot of attention. We also, that was our first billion dollar suppression. Wow. Bill. So, uh, as a result of that, um, there's a common federal wildland policy enacted in 95 to bring everybody into kind of alignment. And then, uh, that succeeded in 2000, uh, after the, the fires keep, keep coming. And interestingly enough, they, they keep coming in even years which means that they, they get caught up in the election cycles. Oh, my word. And uh, photo ops uh, abound. So um, in 2000, a national fire plan puts a fair amount of money to try to target uh, fuels, uh, to try to protect communities, improve, up, upgrade our capacity. And then again, it just flips with all of the changes in administration. What one does, the other repudiates, and we go back and forth. So the fires have gotten meaner. They've gotten bigger. The damages are increasing. The costs are increasing. Um, but there has not really been a major tipping point that you would think, how much How much of this can we take? Yeah. But I'm coming to think about it as, you know, all these burning communities are the flip side of mass shootings. And we seem to be able to tolerate a whole lot of it before we even have a serious discussion. So that's, we will have to see. Yeah. We have three, three major fire busts in California in 12 months. Don't do it. I don't, I don't uh, want to know what will, right? Nothing. Yeah. So we spent 50 years after 1910 trying to put out all fires. And then in the 60s, we've spent really 50 years trying to put good fires back in, trying to restore the problems. We took out bad fires, yes, but we also took out good fires. We need to put the good ones in in various ways, lots of experiments underway. Mixed results. Some places have done very well, some places hardly at all. Uh, But what's happening is I think we're flipping into another phase change, and particularly in the West. Uh, prescribed burning on sort of the Florida model, uh, a kind of set piece, just isn't happening at scale. Can't happen at scale. It's it's too costly. It's too uh, encumbered. Uh, too much social capital, political capital required. It just isn't happening. And what we're seeing is that fire officers are now taking advantage of a new interpretation of federal policy that allows them to manage fires in multiple ways, even one fire. And so we're seeing them putting their resources where they're really high-value assets at risk, say a community, a municipal watershed, a sequoia grove, whatever, and the rest of it pulling way back, drawing a big box, some defensible space, and then burning out. And the burning out may take days. It may take several weeks. Uh, and that's how we're getting a lot more acres burned. Yeah. We're, we're managing with wildfire now. So it's not a suppressed, not a suppression operation in the classic sense. It's not really a prescribed burn. It's a hybrid of the two. With the burnouts, when they're done correctly, being a kind of urgent prescribed fire, not just randomly blacklining and incinerating the perimeters, but working with it as we would do a prescribed burn. Yeah. So it's a very interesting pro- I don't see a plan B. If this if that technique fails, 
there's really nothing left in the West. Yeah. Just here in Utah, we had, uh, it was called the Nebo fire a few months back. Uh, you know, one of these kind of foothill communities where mm-hmm. there's uh, kind of this, I mean, you, you talk about in some of your books about the wildland urban interface, right? These sites where n- neighborhoods and, and, and schools and, you know, suburbia is creeping up into the foothills and creeping up into this fuel and uh, watching the political fallout, it, there was a lightning strike burn that they then said, well, we're going to allow this to burn for a little bit because, you know, they've they know the science and know that sometimes yeah. these things need to burn. And then it got out of control. And there's been all kinds of political fallout oh, yeah. as um, people are now saying, well, how, how could the Forest Service have let this burn? Now all these houses were lost and so forth. And the Forest Service is kind of caught between the rock, rock and our place. Yeah. Um, things need. I mean, you, you write at one point. You wrote and one of the quotes I pulled out that I really like. You said, the land will burn and needs to burn. The question is how and with what consequences or whether it is within the scope of the historic fire regime. And th- th- this is something that we cannot escape in the West. And I don't know. I don't know if we ever yeah. will. Right. No, fires are going to be here. Um, there are ways. Uh, I, I don't like the term they let it burn because if they're doing it right, they're not letting it burn. And they're not just monitoring it. And this is part of the shift that I think is still underway. Some parts of the West, I've seen it in the Southwest, they've become quite adept at this. Um, I'm not sure where, where Utah is at at this point. But they're not watching it. They are actively engaging with the fire. They're managing the and fire. They're pushing, right. they're managing, they're pushing it here, they're pulling it there. They're doing all kinds of things. They're not just sitting back and observing it to see what it's going and let it do its natural thing. When this kind of box and burn strategy is done right, it is an active engagement. There are a lot of things going on um, and it may cost money because it is a way of controlling the fire, but it's a way of controlling the fire and controlling the smoke, I would add, that uh, allows some of the good fire effects to be back on the land because the sooner we can do that, the better we create buffers against what's coming at us in the future. Yeah. And I chose the title Between Two Fires because I think that's our condition. We are between two fires. Uh, we're always between two fires. And the book is designed so that each of the chapters is separated by um, a significant fire year or a significant fire. So that wherever you are in that chronicle, that narrative, you are always between two fires. And I did that deliberately to try to create this sense because there's no end point where we have it fixed. Yeah. It's going to be a continued problem. Well, let's shift a little bit then. Um, you have started publishing a series. Well, what was apparently going to be this this volume two of the Between Two Fires project? You now have expanded out into, I think, uh, <laughs> nine or ten volumes is what it'll be in the end. Um, but it, you're yeah. calling it um, To the Last Smoke. As the name of the series, um, could you tell us the the background behind that that phrase? Sure. Well, when I started 1967, the Park Service, the National Park Service, was still under a 10 a.m. policy, suppression only, all suppression all the time, and you're you're instructed to stay with that fire to the last smoke, so you don't walk away and just let it burn itself out after you've put a line around it or contained it. You actively stay with it. And so I thought as this series was coming out, it would be my, I would be 50 years in fire in one way or another. And this would be my way of staying with that, with fire as a subject for 
well, stay with it to the last smoke. Yeah. So that's where the title comes from. Um, there's a number of volumes I pulled out. Um, I mean, the three <laughs> I spent the most time uh, working through were uh, one on the interior west, uh, the one on the mm-hmm. northern Rockies, and then the one on the southwest. You also have one on California, <laughs> uh, Florida. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll put the full list up on, right. on the podcast website or maybe in the intro. But maybe we could zoom in on just a couple of these and use them as a way to kind of sample what is unique about sure. the fire regimes and managements and histories of these different regions because they, they do play out really differently. They do. I, I originally thought that I would, I would write some essays as I went along and then eventually assemble them into the second volume, what I thought of as the color commentary, because there's too much detail. You can't really get into a narrative, a large narrative, without the book becoming unmanageable. But what I found was that uh, the country is really divided rather profoundly into regions. And what works in Florida doesn't work in California, and what works in the northern Rockies doesn't work in Florida, uh, and so forth. And so I, I set out the three big regions, sort of the, the three, the triangle. Uh, Florida, which has always excelled at prescribed fire. California, which has always six, oh, triumphed in suppression. And the Northern Rockies, which has always had to deal with big fires in, in the backcountry. Remote places, yeah. Those were the three hearths, if you will. And then I, it turns out I either overestimated how much money this would take or came in way under budget. <laughs> and we had money left, so... I began thinking I should really organize these into some short books, a maximum of 60,000 words, roughly 200 pages, and continue. So we've got the Great Plains, the Southwest, um, in addition to the, the big three. And then um, since then, we've, we've got uh, the Interior West, uh, the Northeast, uh, a volume called Slopovers, which has three mini histories for the Pacific Northwest, Alaska, and the Oak. Woodlands, uh, interesting area. And then finally one called Here and There, which deals with topics and some comparative stuff with other countries. So nine books in all. Wow. And way out, way out of what I thought it was. But the money was still there, so I just kept, kept doing the road trips and writing. They all have a different character, and then I each, end each of them with that region between two fires. So Florida between two fires, the interior west between two fires. So then try to assess how they fit into the national narrative. Yeah. Well, let's take, um, let's take a moment and talk about, um, how about the Northern Rockies one? So the, the, some of the recent fires that people have been thinking about in the last few years have been cities, some of these very urban suburban fires in California and elsewhere. Right. And in the Northern Rockies volume, you, you sketch out a very different um, story is these are taking place, um, they're, they're much larger scale often, uh, but they're out in the wild and remote places and kind of fly over or, or drive through country, right? Yeah, and they're also, they shifted. Again, in the 60s, it's part of what made up the fire revolution is that we changed land use, federal land use. The Wilderness Act is the most striking of these, but the Leopold Report for the Park Service in 63 set them on a different path as well. And so what had been just sort of backcountry uh, is now legal wilderness. What are some of the different protections or ideas that get imposed on, on wilderness designated landscapes that's really going to affect the fire policy? Can you explain that for us? Sure. It's very interesting because uh, you're not going to be sending bulldozers in. You're not going to be sending mechanical stuff. You're not going to be uh, flying airplanes. Uh, all of these are prohibited. Uh, 
In fact, as one fire officer in the Northern Rockies pointed out at the time, he says, you know, it's practically illegal for us to put out a lightning-caused fire in one of these areas. And you read some of the original discussions about wilderness area, even uh, Howard uh, Zanizer and others, they thought, well, we should have some fire protection. Maybe we could have smoke jumpers or something so they wouldn't stay. We don't want roads built in. We don't want these others. But they still thought fire protection would be a part yeah. of it. And now it's not. So what does that actually mean? Well, cause isn't- how, does, how are you going to manage a fire in this area? Do you just watch it? Do you monitor it? Are we allowed to go in and set prescribed large backcountry fires? You are in Florida, by the way, in wilderness, uh, Bradwell Bay wilderness area, uh, relies on prescribed burning. Again, Florida is often its own world. Uh, but what do you, how do you manage that? So that, that gets caught up in a lot of this, but it's always been an area of, of big fires and influential big fires that seem to change the national. Like Yellowstone in 88, right? That's right. Yeah. But isn't this also part of the, I mean, there's kind of an irony here in that, you know, when we, <laughs> when we draw a line around a landscape and call it a national park or we call something wilderness, part of, part of the impetus is this, this idea that we have that it's, it's a pristine region that we want to preserve it as it is and to like, right, don't, don't build roads through it. Don't do these things. We want to keep it as it is. We want it to remain static, which, of course, nature isn't going to have it, right? And so, right, it's not going to be a museum piece. And I think a lot of the early uh, thinking about uh, wilderness and philosophy, wilderness philosophy, recognize that you're preserving processes. But how do you preserve a process like fire? It's destructive, or or, which, or although it is regenerative, well, it it is also destructive, and then it kind of rubs people the wrong way, right? Well, they can. It produces a lot of smoke, which people hate. But the fact is, the critical fact is that it moves. Ah, uh, yeah. It's not going to stay in the box. And how you how you deal with that is not is not obvious. So they needed a lot of space, some geographic space, some political space, some bureaucratic space in the late 70s, early 80s to figure out what this meant. And they really didn't get it. And so we're we're still working. The managed wildfire is now probably the best shot we've got. We're going to have to accept that with fire, you're going to have to allow people in there. Yeah. And I, I would make even a biological argument. Now, this is our species task. This is what we do that no other species does. We are the keystone species for fire on the planet. Hmm. And I think we, we have an obligation as well as a right uh, to think about how to manage it. That doesn't mean we send in bulldozers and build roads, but we, we have to be actively engaged with fire. It's not enough to, uh, to stay out of it. So once Prometheus brought it in, we, we, we accept some responsibility there, huh? It was a Faustian bargain. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was our first Faustian bargain <laughs> and we're still living with the consequences. I mean, even, you know, even if we think about climate change, what's driving that? Well, it's all of our fossil fuel. Yeah. Combustion, but you know, that's a story of us as a fire creature with a, with a species monopoly over fire, choosing how we were going to do it. And so that for me is one continuous narrative. Mm. So the Northern Rockies was interesting for that, but I found that there was less than I expected because it, it's basically one story mm. repeated over with some changes. And the other thing that I hadn't anticipated was the strong sense in the region of generational 
transitions of each generation sort of looking to what preceded it, wishing to preserve something of that heritage, that sort of backcountry heritage, and handing it down. And even in McLean's book, Young Men in Fire, you see this, where he's getting it from Bill Bell, and now he's working with uh, Laird Robinson. Uh, there's this sense of it being handed down, and there, there's that comes through strong, and it comes through in the literature. And I hadn't anticipated that at all. But overall, the Northern Rockies, which I thought of as, wow, you've got all these big fires, you've got all this influence, it's going to, it's going to overflow, uh, 60,000 words, uh, was actually the smallest of the books interesting, in the series. California is too big. Well, yeah. One, but that's, that's <laughs> another story. Um, let's shift over to the interior west. One unique thing I found in this volume, and, and it's in some of the others as well, um, is the impact of uh, invasive species like cheatgrass, uh, beetles and blights and things, and how some of these, and it, it highlights in interesting ways in, in the Interior West book, the impact of other ecological processes and things going on, and then how fire um, is caused by them, how it feeds into them. Can you give us a, a little a little flavor of that, of kind of the interconnectedness sure. between all these various uh, things going on in the Interior West or or elsewhere? Sure. Sure. Well, the interior west is a great demonstration because of uh, the beetle infestations, especially in Colorado, and of course cheatgrass throughout the Great Basin yeah, yeah. Uh, is, is sort of really the poster child for it. And one of the one of the shocking things I learned on cheatgrass is that people who have studied it for a long time, cheatgrass is not necessarily the worst beast out there. Um, there are other nastier exotics. And if we succeed in eliminating or driving back cheatgrass, we better have something benign to put in its place, or we might actually look back on the cheatgrass era as a kind of golden age, where at least we could kind of live with it, and it might get worse. It seems about <laughs> half of our plant and wildlife department here is, and their grad students are working on, on not just cheatgrass, but also um, how to successfully introduce indigenous grasses and, you know, kind of That's repopulate right. the landscape with we were kind of with its original fire regime. Well, cheatgrass is notorious for fire because it, it forms uh, a real uh, almost symbiosis. It cures earlier. It's very flashy. It burns quicker. So it, it has already quick, gone right. to seed. And it drives out the other species, which cannot respond to that change in fire patterns. Mm-hmm. And then what about, what about the beetles? Well, the beetles are interesting because there was so much alarm. Now you've got all these dead trees. We're going to have uh, fire hazard is going to, you know, spike. Well, it only spikes temporarily. It it increases significantly when the tree is dying and it's filled with dead red needles. But once the needles fall off in a year or so, the there's a lot of biomass out there, but not a lot of fuel to carry a fast-moving flame hmm. fire. Hmm. So it's very different. And this goes back to several points. One is that all the fuel that we talk about in fire is biomass, but not all biomass is really fuel. Interesting. Not all of that is available to burn. And the big stuff, particularly the big green stuff, is a heat sink, not a heat source. Mm-hmm. So if you want to put a campfire out, put a big chunk of fresh cut green wood in it, and it will soak up all the heat and the, <laughs> the fire will end. So this is also why logging and fire do different things. Because, I mean, logging takes the big stuff and leaves the little. Fire burns the little and leaves the big. But this also is, your point is well taken, that fire is part of a whole choreography of interactions. 
in the environment. And it's different from most of what we think of as disturbances. So it's different from floods, windstorms, ice storms, hurricanes, whatever. All of those can happen. They're strictly mechanical processes. They can happen without a particle of life being present. But fire gets its energy by feeding off that living biomass. It has been integrated with the living world since plants first colonized continents. About, we have fossil charcoal dating back 420 million years. So it is, it is an evolutionary selective force, which things adapt to. It's an ecological process, which things come into accommodate, which is why removing it can be upsetting. Mm. So it is much more integrated with the living world. It's a byproduct of the living world in ways that these others are not. For millennia, it has been, right? For Forever. Yeah, yeah. For eons. And this is also hopeful in the sense that that's a point of interaction, a point of intervention that people have that's different than dealing with floods or ice yeah. storms or hurricanes. Mm. So it also gives us the illusion that we're, we have more control than we actually have. Mm. <laughs> We're all running short on time. Um, I, I do want to first comment. I think it's great that there seems to be like a rooster crowing in the background, uh, which may be a first, yeah. maybe the only time that'll happen on the podcast. I think that's pretty, <laughs> pretty awesome. We're, we have a small hobby farm here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, We've got sheep and the rooster's doing his bit out there. Um, <laughs> well, one thing that I pulled from the interior west, and you know, we, we don't have time to get into the southwest, or I mean, in, in California, which um, I mean, and I encourage people to go look up some of the other recent interviews we've been doing about what's going on in California, but, um, you know, speaking of kind of the complexity of these environmental relationships between fire uh, and, and plants and animals and, and humans, you know, and then beetles come in or then it's cheatgrass or then it's, you know, uh, or climate change um, really does speak to the complexity and the constantly shifting dynamics of all of these relationships, which should encourage us or call for us to also have flexible and constantly adapting constantly evolving policies, right? Um, which runs somewhat counter to what I think agencies and administrations want to do, right? They, they want a, a set policy, a standard. Well, they want, that's right. They want a clear administrative standard. The 10 a.m. policy was brilliant mm -hmm. for that. It was a terrible environmental policy, but administratively it was, it was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, the, the environment will just never let us, uh, sit on a single policy, will it? Um, so I mean, that, that's one reason why I, I wanted to highlight um, some of your work and inform people's conversations because I think you know when we when we see you know the campfire and we see California burn and and and, and people die we immediately want to rush for a solution what is the solution how do we fix this yeah. and and a big takeaway from a lot of your work is that well there is no single solution we need to yeah. we need to commit to being engaged for well forever really in constantly adapting to and, and addressing things and, and finding whatever new solution is needed for the, for the day and time, which is not very satisfying to a public that wants to just simply fix it and be done. Yeah. Fire, fire is a relationship. Yeah. And then we need, we need to accept that we're in that, right? We need to accept it. And I use as a kind of epitaph for, for the book, you know, source for the between two fires uh, title. Uh, a line from the prophet Ezekiel, who said, they shall go out from one fire and another fire shall devour them. And I thought that captured the sense pretty well. So he was prophetic. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Thank you for joining us again. Thank you for your work. Um, unfortunately, um, I think your work will continue to be um, relevant. It'd be great if it wasn't, but um, as Ezekiel said, yeah, no, right, there, there's, there's surely another fire on the horizon ready to devour us. So 
uh, thanks for helping us kind of wrap our heads around this and, and come to terms with it. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm sorry we didn't have more chance to talk about uh, some of the details and other things, but it's a great subject and it, it interbreeds with so many other topics. We could go for a long, long, I could go for a long, long time. <laughs> you won't have to. So <laughs> thank you for the invitation. Thanks so much, Steve. Take care. You bet. Good luck. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this podcast. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. I'm Brendan Rensink, and I serve here as the host, producer, and engineer, and pretty much everything else at the podcast. So if you have any praise or critique, I guess you can probably send it my way. I also serve here at the Red Center as the assistant director and as an assistant professor in the Department of History. So please contact me if you have any questions, not just about the podcast, but about the Red Center, our events, our funding, or anything else. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at micahdahlanderson.com. That's Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll go ahead and include a link in the episode description. If you live here in the Intermountain West, let me also mention our digital public history project, Intermountain Histories. You can visit it at intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching for Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. With this website and free mobile app, you can explore and read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. Each is researched and written by students and professors at universities around the region. Otherwise, please subscribe to the podcast or follow us on Facebook or Twitter to receive notification when the next episode goes live. We have many more fascinating conversations on the horizon and hope that you'll join us.